0: Welcome, welcome back to Boss and Cage Podcast. And so today we have Dr. Ron. And, you know, after doing like my due diligence and looking, doing my homework about this guy, I mean, listening to his resume is like looking for the cast of Grey's Anatomy all in one person, right? This guy (laughs) delivers so much different data and so much different information i think even one of his his google talks he was saying like that's one thing that everyone always says is that he delivers a lot of value inside of his decks inside of his presentation so get ready to take a lot of notes because we're going to be talking today and i'm deemed him the health is wealth boss so the floor is yours ron why you tell the audience a little bit more about who you are and what we're talking
1: about today Sure, absolutely. So, I'm a physician. I'm um, in Silicon Valley. I'm a primary care doctor, and I had a bit of an atypical route to medicine. I, I kind of joked that I didn't re- I wasn't born knowing that I was going to go into medicine. I was more kind of coerced into going into medicine for my parents who kind of expected that of me. <laughs> so, I didn't really know what I was going to do with my career path. And it's been a very rewarding profession, but Um, But I got to say that after I came out of medical training and I came to Silicon Valley, um, I didn't realize that part of my clinical practice was going to be addressing a very diverse population of entrepreneurs, small business owners, and a lot of folks that work in tech. And really, um, to just give you an insight of how my career evolved, when I started seeing folks that were my age or younger presenting with conditions like diabetes and heart disease, it was actually shocking to me because that's not really what I learned about in medical training. Typically, when we do case studies in medical training, we're like, here's an 80-year-old Caucasian person with a heart attack or a 75-year-old African-American who developed X, Y, and Z. And I'm literally seeing 30, 35-year-olds coming in with their first heart attack or adult onset diabetes. And it was mind blowing. And while I was sort of doing this in my practice, I was again trained like a traditional medical doctor. I realized that I didn't actually have the content and knowledge for my medical training to help these folks in a meaningful way. I didn't want to just keep adding more and more drugs to their list. I really wanted to have a different impact on them. And interestingly, what ended up happening is I ended up developing some of the same conditions as a lot of my patients. So then this became really personal because I'm like, Here I am, I'm somebody who exercises, I do what I think are the right things. But in the midst of my busy busy life, I'm actually not hitting the health parameters that I'm expecting out of my patients. So that was an aha moment and a wake up call. And it was something inside me that told me I've got to create better solutions for myself so I can be a better doctor, but I've got to simultaneously create better solutions for my patients who are coming from really diverse ethnic groups that are giving being given a lot of generic information. So that's how the work sort of started. And then I kind of took that out to companies and corporations and long story short, I've sort of become an expert in the Silicon Valley area of corporate wellness being delivered to diverse populations. So I don't want to bore you with all the details, but that's kind of a high level of how I got into this work. So, I mean, for the listener, you can hear how
0: nonchalantly he just says, I just started talking to tech companies. You're not just talking for regular tech right. companies. I mean, obviously, I've I seen a talk with you. You were talking to Google, right? I mean, you're you were on a cover of a Forbes and a cover of, of a Times article. So, like, just, just talk about that. I mean, obviously, you're a physician. You know what you're talking about. But how did you go from that to essentially being more like a household name brand in the tech industry?
1: Great point. So, you know, again, I didn't graduate top of my class, Uh, you know, so again, maybe I'm being a little bit extra modest here, but I just want people to know that I wasn't somebody who thought it was going to be a doctor later in life when I was a child. But once I had that calling to sort of do something different to impact the population. I realized that I have to do something that's completely outside of the box of my medical practice if I'm going to make an impact. So that's where I had to really tap into tools that I didn't learn during medical training. I love to write. I love to create when I was growing up. And I'm like, the biggest challenge I have in my practice is how do I motivate, inspire individuals to make lifestyle changes that they're going to stick to? not the latest 30-day diet, the 60-day diet. How do I storytell in a way that people are going to really take their health seriously, their emotional and physical health? So once I started rehearsing that in my head, and literally the place to rehearse it is in my clinic, the way I'm interacting with 20, 25 patients a day. I'm giving a sales pitch to every person that's walking through the door. And because I'm in a busy practice, it's structured. well only get like 15 to 20 minutes to see each person. You got to be pretty damn good. It's like an elevator pitch right with every patient that comes through the door. And as I started test marketing, what's really working and having an impact, I started taking that body of knowledge out on the streets into Silicon Valley corporations, into libraries and communities to really spread that message more deeply the creator side of me has always been a scratch that I wanted to itch. And that's where I realized that, you know what, I want to create a website for my medical group that a lot of these diverse populations can come to. So they're not being told to eat the same bland, you know, Western-based diet, even though I've got immigrants from all over the world that are coming in consuming different types of diets, how do I create a cultural sort of customization to this so it really aligns? And that was something very attractive to tech companies because as no surprise to you or your audience, tech companies have an incredibly diverse, audience from all over the world. And if you hand them a one-size-fits formula for how they should eat when somebody's an Indian vegetarian or somebody's from a different part of the world where they eat something totally different, that's just not going to resonate. So really, my whole goal was, how do I create diverse uh, solutions for these folks? And how do I tell the story of health and metabolism in a way that's going to resonate? It's not fear mongering. You know, we do have to create some sense of urgency, but how do you teach science in a way that people can really understand and then apply principles to their daily life. So I think that creativity and storytelling really resonated with Silicon Valley customers. And really, in the early days, I felt blessed because I had a Oracle right across the street from me. So I get to go out there and give some talks at their fitness center. And right away, I was noticing like, what are the messages? What's the content that they really want to understand? And I think as doctors, we often underestimate how much science are patients are able to learn and are motivated to learn. Uh, I'm shocked that I have folks that come in with high school degrees and they know things about metabolism. Many of my physician colleagues don't know because they're in it. They've seen what's happened to their parents. They've seen what happens to themselves and they're learning stuff. So that was really motivating for me in terms of how do I take scientific information, make it engaging and understandable for the broader public. So I really tell people my success hasn't been more as a physician. It's been more as an educator, a communicator, a speaker and a motivational person Which is something that just reading up on you, you do all of those things too. So I think these are skills that. every profession can really benefit from.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I'm just hearing you speak. I mean, obviously you're well-spoken, which goes hand-in-hand with being a doctor, first of all. Second of all, I just think just by your delivery, your bedside manner is is through the roof, right? But then you're taking this information and you're delivering it to a target audience that's not necessarily the easiest target audience to convince about everything. And you're talking about technology. So my next question is, is like, regionally, do you think you would be doing what you're doing now if you were, let's say, on the East Coast versus the West Coast?
1: Oh, absolutely. I I think I would just use a different language to basically connect with that population. So you're right. I've got a high density of tech companies here, but I also uh, have done programs for, let's say, teachers or blue-collar folks that are working in a specific workforce, working for the city. So then I pivot my language to use different things. So, for example, when I'm talking to tech audience and I'm explaining metabolism, I use words like AI, operating system, you know, things like that to describe metabolism – Um, With others, um, a very uniform analogy I use, which you have probably heard from our podcasting, is I love transportation analogies, like glucose or cars inside your body. Now we've got a traffic issue. So I think if I was on that side and I was energized by the same incentive, that's where the creativity comes in. You know, at some time, I like to kind of pivot away from tech and go to a population that's totally different. One of my favorite populations, I gotta tell you, my number one most fun, most challenging population are teenagers. So given talks to high schools, to teenage boys about health and metabolism, I, I eat that up all the time, you know, because that, that's that's an audience. If you can engage teenagers, man, you can win anybody. So yeah, so yeah I, I love to pivot the story as much as I can, depending on the audience.
0: So, I mean, with with all these different tentacles uh, about your personality and and your business structure and and who you are chemically, right? If you could define yourself in three to five words, what would those three to five words be?
1: I would. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I I would call myself um, a physician educator Mm -hmm. who is a champion for patients to make lifestyle changes. That's more than three to five words. So, so if you cut me some slack on the extras, that's about what yeah. I'd want to do. A physician educator who's passionate about transforming lives—that's what I'd say.
0: So, I mean, kind of going back to, to my original question about like, why did you pick like the area of Silicon Valley and not regionally, like that area of expertise? I mean, you're saying you're an educator, right? Yeah. You could have easily become a philosopher, or you could easily become, uh, you know, working for a college or, or or at that level to teach other doctors. But you took a different route. So, I mean, it kind of goes back to you being as a kid. Now, I want to talk about you growing up. Like what kind of upbringing did you come up in?
1: Yeah, my, my dad was a physician. My mom's a school teacher. And really, um, back during those days, so I, I guess that kind of helped in that situation. But really, that generation of immigrants that came to the country, this is really pre-internet, pre-tech. And there was literally only three professions immigrants wanted their kids to go into, you know, basically become a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. I mean, it's kind of a running joke. I mean, if you thought of doing anything creative or arts, you're basically told that you're going to be on the streets, you know? So that, that was pretty much what I was left with. And interestingly, my older brother, he kind pick even though he's in science He didn't pick the medical path that my dad wanted him to pick. So I was kind of the default kid. And I was like, I didn't really have things I was passionate about. You know, back then when we didn't have the internet, it was really hard to explore like what else is out there, right? I mean, it's very confusing trying to figure out what your career path is going to be. So I just kind of stepped into medicine at that time. But like I said, I I enjoyed things like reading and writing. I was always, I I was definitely not the best in biology or physiology when it came to my pre-med classes and courses, but I was consistently the best writer. Like when it came to writing, Like nobody can hold a candle to the way I could write. And I really thank that to my my father, because even though he is an MD, PhD um, and he's a scientist and he was also a philosopher, writer and a poet. He did a lot of public speaking. So he was a very atypical physician. And I sort of watched that growing up. And I'm so grateful that he was like that. He'd give me all types of different books and creative projects to work on. So it wasn't just a straight scientific upbringing like a lot of my other friends who were in physician-based families. So I think that really planted the seed for thinking about science, but in a very different sort of way than the, the mainstream way that most physicians might come out of practice thinking. Hmm. So I'm
0: just listening to you. I mean, I, I would think you're you're a rare anomaly when it comes down to, to this equation of what medicine looks like for the average person, right? I mean, obviously, you would think most doctors are highly analytical. And unless they go into maybe surgery or, or plastic surgery, that's where the creativity comes in. But for you, you're highly analytical, but you're also very creative in the creative writing space and in the speaking. So I would think that you're probably 50-50, like left brain, right brain. And uh, have you done any research to figure out like what, where are your number's at? <laughs>
1: Yeah, you're you're right. It, it is about 50-50. I would actually call it more like 60-40, like more on the creative side. And and I think where I feel like I've been blessed is actually a lot of my colleagues even that were in medical training. Many of them were musicians, or they enjoyed writing or doing creative things, but I think they didn 't quite find a way to infuse it into their lifestyle and once you 're fully committed to a uh, career in medicine um, that 's like a hundred percent of your life so Some people have been very creative about carving out that time, but I think i 've been blessed because i 've been able to infuse it into my daily practice so literally what i 'm doing right now during business hours right being able to talk to you creatively about business and medicine and things like that, or when i 'm doing some side work on my blog, things like that a lot of that is really feeding my mainstream clinical practice and business because my patients now are going to listen to my podcast, things that I've created or my blog to actually learn about how to consume, understand science and apply it to their life. And that to me was the aha moment because there were times, I'll be frank, where I felt like I was a fish out of water during medical training. I'm like, am I really in the right place here? Because there are people around me that are, I feel far more scientifically competent, more passionate about just being a doctor, but I've got a side of me that just feels hungry to do something a little bit different. And that hunger stayed with me until I found the right opportunity. And that would, be my advice to a lot of your listeners, because I've had engineers come to me, they're very left brain, and they're feeling a need to do something creative. And I'm sure you've brought on a lot of speakers in the past that talk about creativity and the demand that we have for creativity in the business place. Um, And it doesn't have to be one or the other. I mean, the real creative uh, music is when you can find a way to apply that to a so-called left brain life, whether it's engineering and medicine. And when you can hit the um, intersection between those two, boy, it's a lot of fun because you get to use both sides of the brain. You feel pretty fulfilled on that. So, so I mean, I think on that last word of, about fulfillment, right? And, and again,
0: there's a lot of people out there that, that, that listen to this podcast and they may have a career or they may be wanting to become an entrepreneur or start their own business. And for what you just said, it, it, it's like an outline, a roadmap to how to merge these two together. So if you're talking to this individual, like what's the key things that you realize about yourself that someone else may see in their self that gives them the opportunity to bring the two worlds together.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so one thing is don't think is one of the key things I hear from people is that you know, I used to do this when I was X age and there's no way I can do that now. Like they've already given up on their younger self and what talents and um, potential they had back then. And I would say that all of us dust that off and whether it's writing, creating in whatever way, bring that out in some form. And today we are blessed with unlimited opportunities to create. Many people come to me and they're like, I want to write a book or I want to start a successful blog. I'm like, that's great. And even if you don't, you know, finding a publisher was like a a huge nightmare for me when I wrote a book. And I think the problem I had was in the beginning, I had the same type of expectations that I did when I tried to rise the ladder to get into medical school, get residency, all those things. So if if I were giving advice to folks right now or to my younger self, I'd be like, just start creating and don't worry about like how many followers you have how many readers and listeners just enjoy the joy of creating and writing in your way even if you have two or three people read it and your own family members it's still something very gratifying and it's going to start developing that inner wisdom and that talent that you had from before so so you know for me like just to give an example the book journey for me to write a book i, I put a lot of constraints on myself my twins were really young i'm like how do i find a publisher I could have made the journey much more satisfying if I didn't really have that goal at the end. I'm like, you know what? Whatever I create here, I can apply this to my own practice, to my family, to my community. So, this research is going to be really fun as I do it. The journey is going to be great. And if it takes off great, if it doesn't, boy, do I know a lot about this topic just as a result of doing that. So, so, so I think, yeah, finding these small ways that you can express creativity and really dedicating focus time two, three times a week where you do that as a discipline, just like you use that discipline with work, it'll create this incredible balance with the work that you're doing on a daily basis. And then you're going to, you're going to want to attribute more time to that. And you're going to start feeling that balance that I started feeling. And then all of a sudden my left brain job felt so much more rewarding. And now my creativity is sort of off the charts in terms of when I'm working on that. So it really elevates both ideas. If you can just start working on the other side. Wow. Wow. So I'm going to play
0: devil's advocate here, right? I mean, obviously what you're talking about right now with the both hemispheres and working together, you make it sound very sexy. It's, it's very appealing. Right. If, I, if, I, if I'm a student in, in, in high school and I'm thinking about going to college for some kind of medical background, I'm like, oh, my God, I want to be this guy. But in reality, in every single journey, there's always some obstacles. So I want you to kind of talk to like, like the worst case scenario that's happened to you. And it can be being a doctor with an actual patient, or it can be an actual speaker on stage. Like, what is the worst thing that you can remember? You don't have to name names or tell about the company, but we want to kind of feel that emotional side effect on the negative side.
1: Yeah. You know, the negative is a lot of times when we have really large creative ideas that we believe in, we've literally test marketed. We know this is going to be a home run if somebody believes in this. Yeah. Unfortunately, when you work in a corporate structure, or if you're working with a client or a customer that doesn't quite see things the same way, they might put handcuffs and constraints on what you're trying to accomplish. So to give you a specific example, again, I'm not going to call it a company, but you know, I knew there's a company that had a very high demographic of Asian Indians and East Asians. And I designed a program that was very specific to that population because they were struggling with the Health of that population. And as much as I tried to make it work, they still wanted me to deliver a very generic product, which I knew just wouldn't resonate. I literally told them, well, let me just do a separate talk for that population because they really need it. They've reached out to me through my blog saying, can you come talk to this population? And they just didn't see it. Um, same thing sometimes, you know, within my prior healthcare system. I'm not going to name it, but basically I had some of these same ideas. But, you know, the corporate suits at the top, they were like, I don't know if this is going to resonate. It's not going to bring in enough ROI. It's going to be too much time. So these sorts of constraints are always there. And then I would encourage folks not to give up. This is where, this is where the creative process comes in. Like, how do I still deliver value in maybe a small way and build up a case? Even the work I'm doing for my current medical group in the early days, they were like, really? You're going to go out to companies, give talks. Um, that's going to take away time from your clinical practice. Is that really going to be a value? So I had to build up a case on a small basis that you no, know, this is important because when I speak in a clinical exam room, or when I speak out in a you know a, a lecture room, I'm 99 of the content is the same. Yeah, I'm not putting a stethoscope on your chest, but my main goal is still to transform you and motivate you to take better care of yourself. So, so I think people started to see that, and they saw the traction we got from the companies. So, I did have to be a little bit creative around how I make that pitch. To clients that we're not seeing the same way or to my own employer who sometimes wouldn't see things the same way as well, too. So not giving up is key. You know, there are some ideas that you have to put to rest. I mean, there are some fights I've tried to fight and I'm like, you know what? It's probably not going to happen. Let me pivot to something else. Um, but um, having that flexibility and creativity is really the key to making things work. So I think that that's a solid
0: segue and you, you brought up about the, the South Asia, right? And, then, and that's like part of the title of, of your, one of your books as well. So was that like the seed of, or like beginning of the fire, the torch to burn for you to write this book.
1: It was. And believe me, already there was a challenge there because even when my publisher and others looked at that body of work, they're like, why are you putting the word South Asian here? We're really limiting. Like there's so many people that can learn about metabolism through this book that are not of South Asian background. And that was a valid point. I mean, I, I realized that although Asian Indians make up a huge segment of the global population, I did realize that I'm kind of limiting myself by putting that ethnicity um, next to it. But it was something that I was so passionate about. I'm like, this is a group that just needs to hear this message in their own language. Cause I know there are plenty of health leaders out there. And, you know, it is a very ethnically segmented market. It's usually a lot of very attractive blonde Caucasian folks are on the covers of these books that are pushing health and wellness. You're not know, seeing many people of my color, your color that are on the covers of these books. And it's a big gaping gap in the area of health and wellness is we don't see much ethnic diversity in the leaders that are promoting that health. So I'm like, I need to do this this way. Um, And that was sort of the fire I had. And, you know, looking back, like people that have come across it, you know, I've had people of all different ethnic backgrounds come across my work and they're like, this has really made a change. And sometimes I have some subtle regrets that, yeah, maybe I should have made it more general. But when I see that Indian vegetarian who sees me and says, this is the only book out there that would have ever saved my life, like I would have probably had a heart attack, that I didn't read this. Then I'm like, thank you. <laughs> that, that, that's what I needed to hear. Because, you know, when you're in the business world and you talk to entrepreneurs, everybody's about scale. How do you reach the most people? How do you make the most money? And sometimes I got to put my blinders on and I'm like, what is my purpose and passion? Even just putting scale aside, even if it's for a very specific um, segment of the population that feels neglected, or they're really outside of mainstream health, how do I reach that population in a different way? And I found that that's definitely much more encouraging for me. But, but, but that lit the fire for me, because that book kind of put me on the map as somebody who's addressing inequities in understanding health and metabolism. And through that, I've just had so many unique opportunities to connect with different diverse populations. And I found that super gratifying.
0: Well, I I definitely I'm loving this conversation because I mean, what you're talking about and you're you're relative to like Asia, right? And you're talking about the Indian culture. And if you look at the global population of the world, we're at 7.7 billion. And in in South Asia, generally, India is roughly over a billion. So it's like, let's say, one seventh of the world, right? Yeah. So why would you not put that title on that book, considering such a large population to begin with? But to your point, on the other side of the coin, They're looking at it as kind of, why are you doing that? Well, I mean, in reality, you're talking
1: to one seventh of the world. I wish you know it's so funny. The first agent I talked to, he literally, he didn't even know what the demographic was. He made it sound like I'm writing a book for a left-handed fly fisherman, you know, like something so unique. I'm like, this is a pretty big part of the population right now. So, so even that understanding wasn't there in sort of mainstream Lytton things. So, so I was pretty lucky to finally land someone, but you, you nailed it right away. This is a huge demographic. Um, but, but you know, what's fun for me is despite that demographic, I really like to identify like subgroups of people that are much smaller, but they're really lacking a lot of access to resources. It's gratifying for me to sort of, hit that population in different ways because I feel like there are a lot of segments that are missing out and you know I can't reach every segment but every now and then if I do a podcast or write a blog post I really try my best to reach audiences that are really neglected in that sort of sphere but but yeah you nailed it this is not a nuanced population it's it's a large percentage of our global population that we're looking at so very very cool Yeah. so
0: I mean obviously somebody's hearing this and, and you know anyone that is thinking about becoming a doctor or a business owner they know that that's a long journey and just hearing you know we've been on this call less than 30 minutes and you've dep- you've you depicted such an epic odyssey of what your life has been so far, but in reality, how long have you been on this journey from the time that you decided to go to medical school to where you are right now to where you're presenting in front of large tech companies?
1: Yeah, so from the time I finished, so when I was done with medical school, I was in Southern Cal for about two years, and then I came to the Bay Area and I was there for another four or five years. So I started the journey about six years after I finished medical training. And even when I say six years, that's when I kind of went out to companies. But like I said, that test marketing, that realization happened a couple of years before that where I'm talking to patients and sort of developing that. Mm -hmm. Now what I would say is for anybody that's sort of, let's say considering a profession like medicine and they, they, they don't wanna have to wait that long, if I had to do it again, I would have probably taken far more liberal arts courses when I was in undergrad. I could be somewhat difficult sometimes when you got to take so many pre-med classes, but now there's so many programs across the country that encourage people to minor in X and Y, and maybe take more liberal arts, take you know world history, just take things that are going to get you to keep writing. Because that's one of the things that I see in scientific professions is people are really poor writers, or they might've been good writers, but they're just terrible writers when they get into it. That part of their creative writing process has been squashed, and as you know, in in your business too, like writing and speaking. They're such important things. So, so you want to pick majors and skills that will, yes, you're going to learn your hardcore sciences, but make sure you're taking things that are going to allow you to develop that creative brain along the way. Because then I think the opportunities you'll see in front of you are going to come to you much more quickly. I feel like I went through a little bit of a slower, longer route because I probably limited myself with the types of classes I could have taken in undergrad and even things I could have done in those off summers, which were always focused on doing scientific internships. I wish I'd probably um, diversified my creativity portfolio. But again, I was blessed by having a father that was doing that in real time while he was raising me. So it's
0: very cool. And I'm happy that you finished on that note about your dad because like that leads me into my next question, right? Obviously your dad is a very renaissance individual, right? I mean, obviously yeah. he was a doctor, but he had all these other different creative things about him and poetry and all these other items. But in addition to that, do you think that he was an entrepreneur by trade, or did you find your entrepreneurial insight and hustle through someone else in your in your bloodline?
1: Yeah, I think it was mainly through my dad. And we we, probably back then, we weren't even using the word entrepreneur unless it was attached to somebody like Henry Ford, right? So like entrepreneurs was like different, but he was somebody in Central California that ran a busy uh, private practice. And anybody that's doing that has to be a business person or entrepreneur by some degree. And I saw the way that he engaged his patients, his clients, his business partners. So he checked off all the boxes in what today we would call an entrepreneur. You know, if he was alive today, he would definitely have a website he'd be writing, he'd probably be blogging and using all the tech tools that we take for granted now. But I definitely say that he had the single greatest impact on my creativity. And also the part of India that I come from, you know, not the stereotype, but Bengal, like the Calcutta area of India, has a very high density of poets and philosophers. So he was raised in a, uh, in a household that although they had a big focus on things like science and law, there were people writing poetry, reciting all these things. So there was a huge creative um, tradition in the household that he was raised in, which actually got imparted to me. And I've kind of passed that on to my kids as well, too. I'm like more concerned about are they spending enough time making their music than whether they're getting their math homework done. So my wife and I, luckily, are aligned on that. And it's not because we have a tactic that this is going to help them. It's just we see that they're much more emotionally fulfilled when they're sort of activating activities that are, yeah, related to academic school work, but also doing these creative things on the side, too. It's just an essential. And, and it's something, again, for you parents out there. I'll tell you, in Silicon Valley, people get very obsessed with when can my child become an entrepreneur, let them put put them in these high-tech boot camps and robotics and all this. And I'm like, you know, give them space to create on their own sometimes because it's really important even for their future professional development as well.
0: Hmm. So with that, I mean, obviously you're you're a podcaster and and you're starting to, to develop into that space as well, which is expanding into everything that you're doing. But this question is kind of like a mix between the podcasting and your upbringing. Have you or would you... Think about possibly interviewing like your your dad if you had that opportunity. And if you did, what would you talk about on your podcast with him?
1: Oh, yeah. You know, so I got to say, so I lost my dad a while back. And um, if I did have on it. So, so I think one thing I learned is, is as much as I was inspired by, by my father, I also realized that the type of relationship I had with them just growing up. I wasn't an op- as open communicating with my dad and I think a lot of men can probably share the sentiment. So we did, you know, he was very loving and very open but I don't feel like I reciprocated that as much with him. So if I literally had on the po- had him on the podcast, I'd want to sort of talk through that a little bit because I think a lot of fathers and sons could probably benefit from that type of conversation. Um, you know, a, a lot of my colleagues and friends that I've grown up with, I feel like the father son relationship is very sort of tactical and business like. It's very achievement oriented. How are you doing sports? You know, how's your jump shot going? <laughs> or, you know, it's kind of like checking off the boxes. And luckily, he wasn't quite like that, but I felt like, I didn't have the open communication style that I would, that I would have liked to share with them, but but I'm benefiting in some ways from that experience because I'm making sure that I don't do the same thing with my boys. I've got twin identical twin boys right now, and you know throughout the process, I've been like. You know, I want my kids to feel so open that they can share anything with me. And for me, that's like my number one thing. As much as we talk about speaking, engaging different audiences, like my teenage boys are my number one audience right now. How do I sort of make that happen? So, so my podcast right now is very scientifically focused. But at some point, I am going to transition to getting folks on where we can have some of those raw open discussions, because I think a lot of that's necessary. There are a lot of great people out there doing that already. But right now, I'm kind of nerding out on giving scientific information. But at some point, I would pivot to those sorts of discussions. So.
0: Very cool. So, I mean, with your twin boys and you're saying that they're teenagers and obviously I have a teenager at my house as well. We have two teenagers. Right. So I I know how that 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 growing up with those kids are like when they're younger, they listen to everything you're doing. Daddy is God. Then they become (laughs) a little bit older and they're kind of "Mm, I want to hang with my friends. And then they turn 14 to 16 and they're complete opposites. So what you're doing right now, how do you currently take from the examples from your dad and, and apply that? And how do you juggle your work-life balance with everything you're doing at the same time?
1: Yeah, good point. So so the one thing, I think the relationship with my boys, one thing that I'm doing is when I grew up watching my dad, um, my dad was an optimist in the midst of a lot of struggles, but it was clear that he was struggling uh, during different phases of his life. Um, and I saw that, but we never really had the opportunity to openly discuss that. With my boys, I don't sugarcoat anything that's happening in my life. If there's issues with my wife, they Know about it. If there's issues with my boss at work, they know everything about it. So I don't, I put it all out on the table. And one tactic that's really helped me, because I've seen the same transition too. You you said it so nicely, where they hang on your every word and all of a sudden they're like in the in the room with the door closed, right? And I'm I'm about to lose my boys, I'm gonna be an empty nester in less than a month, basically. So now I'm trying to really impart as much, I'm cramming in all this wisdom that I can at the last minute. But what's worked the best for me is like when I'd sit at the dinner table is I would actually lay out all my troubles. Instead of constantly trying to counsel them and give them advice, I tell them everything that I'm struggling with, even with my business. too, I'm like, you know what? I really thought that episode would have hit and it didn't work out or this talk just didn't go this well. And then all of a sudden, what I realized is I put that on the table, they'd start giving me advice. And it was really good advice, actually. So they've been an advisor to me from a very early age. And in that sense, I tell people, it's kind of like running a business. You don't want to keep having your manager tell you how to do stuff all day, right? CEOs that just keep going top down, that's when employers are like, I'm out of here. So if your household is like a business, you've got to make every member of the family the dog, the kids, whatever, part of that decision-making process. And as a result of that, like they they understand the pains that I go through. They're helping me. And then they're open with actually sharing some of their struggles with me because I share those solutions with them. I take that same mentality right to the workplace. I've got an incredible team. And even though, yes, there's a hierarchy of where I am based on my title and my MD, all of them feel like we're co collaborators and co-creators. When you come up with programs designed for companies, it's like a complete even line. So it's the same philosophy. Like, I don't want work and family to feel very different. I want my work family to feel like my family, you know, obviously. So, so, so when you sort of can create that uniform emotional approach to workspace and home space. You also don't feel like you've got like a Jekyll Hyde or a dual personality. You're the same you no matter what environment you put yourself in. So for those of you struggling with teenagers and they're not listening to you, I would say put your cards on the table, open your heart up, especially as males, you know, just let them know what you're struggling with. And you might be surprised at how much empathy your kids have for you when they start to see some of that. So that's been really important in terms of raising them.
0: Yeah, that's that's hell of insightful. And and again, I think to the listeners of this podcast and they have multiple different age ranges, but I think the core of this particular audience, they're they're all in that bubble right now to where either they're empty nesters or they're becoming empty nesters pretty soon. Right. So I think that's definitely hell of words of wisdom, insight. So I think on the bandwagon of, of insight, I mean, I would think you're a very structured individual. I mean, obviously you're talking about health, so you must have some kind of health routine or health regimen. So what does your morning routines look like?
1: Yeah. So my morning routine, and, you know, it's interesting. There's a lot that's been said about morning routines, about having a structured approach to routines. So when I teach folks how to do this, I actually want them, I, I lay out some very general principles, but I tell people this is like making music because, you know, a lot of my patients, they want to do everything that I do. They're like, what do you do from 6 a.m.? Like, what is the Ron Sinha routine from 6 a.m.? And I'm like, I want you to follow your own routine, but I'll give you some highlights. One thing is when I get up in the morning, I will do my best to just not look at my phone first thing in the morning because what happens in the morning is most of us are in a creative space for most people there's a lot of potential creativity that can happen in the morning and so when you think about creating that is basically output like you deeping you know digging deep inside your heart and soul to create content or information whatever you're looking at and the minute i pick up that phone and i'm getting input that's gonna suppress and hide a lot of that creative output. And the reason the morning's really key is because when we're waking up from sleep, during sleep we go through different phases of our brain that we're not going through during wakefulness. We dig into our REM-based sleep, our subconscious. There's unbelievable creativity that happens. And if you look at some of the greatest um, achievers in philosophy, medicine, et cetera, pre-internet, a lot of them did the writing and thinking in that morning hour. So I literally have a journal. So, you know, I'll get up, I'll brush my teeth, I'll do my usual stuff. And for me, actually, even the minute I get out of bed, my physical activity starts. I'm brushing my teeth with one leg. I learned to do that after I sprained my ankle. I realized that one leg was not as balanced as the other. So I'm doing a lot of things on one leg often. I'm looking at text, I'm on my right leg. So I'm already treating the day kind of like a bit of a dance And then basically I'll either get in front of my computer or a physical journal, and I will start writing just freestyle. Maybe it's gonna be a future blog post. Maybe it's an idea I have for a presentation. And it takes discipline. It doesn't happen for me seven days a week. Some mornings I'm like thinking about a meeting, I've gotta look at my phone. So again, there's no perfection to this. But when I talk to folks, there's way too much. in. if the input to output ratio is so out, out of whack, people are just consuming so much content, whether it's media, podcasts, researching, reading books. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It can be addictive to put, taking that much information, but you're hiding that innate experience and creativity that we have inside us. So I tell people, you've got hidden pearls inside you. You got to start uncovering those first thing in the morning. So literally my first hour to hour and a half That's what I'm focused on getting some physical activity, getting some creative work done, and then stepping into the, you know, daily hectic emails, organizing, prioritizing my day. That's sort of the next phase. And, you know, for health purposes, there's been a lot that's been said around things like, you know, for people trying to lose weight. I do tell people that in the morning, That's when you want to start up your car, like your car, your body basically is like a car, it's got an engine, and you want to start it up in the morning, because if you're going to be sitting in 8 12 14 hours of zoom meetings all day, if you can get even 15 to 20 minutes of physical activity, preferably before you eat something your body's going to be just revved up. It'll be humming at a low level and you will burn more glucose, cholesterol, and you'll stay a little bit more lean throughout the day. If you can start up most of my patients, they start in the morning and they might squeeze in a 20, 30 minute evening walk, but they're sitting like all day. So I'm like already get a little bit active physically in the morning and then a little bit of creative output. Even if it's a paragraph, start with that. I think that'd be a good start.
0: Wow. And I mean, I I just hear you're just, you're just spitting this out so naturally and so fluently. You got to tell me some of this has to be coming from, from your book, right? I mean, some of these are some chapters in your book. Is that right or wrong? Yeah.
1: I mean, the book is really focused on the health parts of it. So definitely South Asian Health Solution has a lot of that. I would say a lot of the other content's really coming from my, from my blog posts, my podcasts and the program. So, so as, as the book came out, I realized that when I see folks in the clinic, Many of them, yes, are struggling with things like diabetes, blood pressure, or the usual sort of chronic health issues. But many are just struggling. I mean, I, I don't know how this naturally happened, but I found people asking me for career advice. And in the beginning, I was like, I don't know if you should leave that job and start your own business. I'm not sure if I'm in a position to say that. But then I found that it was actually after I got to know my patients, I actually enjoyed giving them not specific advice. But helping them sort of search inside themselves to see, is this really a move that's going to help me? Like, for example, if I have a patient that's gone to six or seven different companies and they're not happy, at a certain point, we have to stop blaming the companies, right? We need to look inside and see that, listen, if we don't change what's inside, it doesn't matter what work environment I put you in, you're going to be unhappy. So let's work on that. So that became interesting to me. And that led to the evolution of my writing, where I alternate between scientific stuff around metabolism and weight loss, but also how to like get past inner resistance, or really try to reflect in a very meaningful way that's going to help our relationships and help our business bottom line simultaneously. So, so it's a mixture of both. I'd say my more recent content through podcasting, vlogging, and after my program, that's probably addressing, yes, metabolism, but also that leadership and sort of personal outreach as well, too. Wow. So
0: for the record, I mean, what is the exact title of your of your book?
1: Yeah, the, the, uh, the book title is The South Asian Health Solution, The South Asian Health Solution on Amazon. Yeah.
0: Great, great. Yeah. So with that, right, I mean, obviously you're you're well versed in reading. Is there any particular one book that you could think of in, in the past 20, 30 years that was like the landmark book for you to be like, my life would have been completely different if I didn't read that one book?
1: Ooh, that's a tough one. Let me just think. So when I when I think of books, I think of two categories of books. So you've got sort of the business books that are out there, the Malcolm Gladwell's, you know, Jim Collins' Good to Great. And I, I did go through a period where I write some of those. I really like Malcolm Gladwell's books, you know, like um, Outliers and Tipping Point. They're all great books. But I'd say the ones that really helped me transform into creative soul are the ones that had a little bit more of a self-realization, not really spiritual, but, you know, a different angle that helped me overcome a lot of inner resistance. And out of those books, I'd say Siddhartha by Herman Hess, Mm -hmm. which actually documents, not really specifically biographically, but it sort of takes you to the story of the Buddha in a very small book fashion, but learns you a lot of lessons along the way. And I've, I've read that probably 10, 12, 15 times. It's a very easy read, but it really helped get me past some inner resistance. And and it really led to me reflecting on my life in a different way. Something more recently that I've really liked, and I've read a few times, is called The War of Art. It's kind of a play of words on The Art of War, but it's The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. And that's a great book. Any of you that are in a writer's block or a business block, and you're just not getting yourself down to spend an hour to write, like all the things that I've told you, many people just can't get themselves to do it. And he has a very unique way of writing the his book where you literally feel like he's a coach inside your head. And he's telling you exactly why you're not performing. And this is what you need to do. It's just, I can't even put good words to how well he does. It's sort of getting you past that inner resistance and block so you can just start the business of creating. So I'd say those are uh, two books that have a great impact on sort of helping me create and do what I've done.
0: Wow, I mean, it definitely sounds like some profound reading. So I definitely to the readers and listeners of this this podcast, I would definitely take him up on those two books for sure. And it kind of leads me into like your tech, right? I mean, obviously you're a tech guy, That's a a medical guy at the same time. So with all the tech things that you're doing, you must have some like software to help you. Like what software would you say that you use on a day to day basis that you would not be able to do what you're doing without having access to?
1: Yeah. And, And did you mean like from a health perspective in terms of health tech? like in terms of or, maybe one of each, or, or, maybe one. Yeah. I
0: mean, again, you're two separate hemispheres, right? I mean, right, right, medical on yeah. the other side, you're, you're tech yeah. and you're communicating. So like, totally, tech, yeah. yeah.
1: So I would say in the industry right now with all the health tech out there, the wearables and things. So, so there, there's two things that I teach people. So when people come to me, often they're asking for the right app for meditation, for exercise, should I get an Apple watch a Fitbit? And I tell people that all these tools that I might recommend to you initially They're training wheels. And I'll tell you, so for example, my favorite recent tech piece that I'm using a lot in patients that I've used off and on is a continuous glucose monitor. We call them CGMs, a glucose sensor. And I'm actually designing programs from our healthcare group that are focused on these sensors. And I'd say to me, it's been the most exciting technology in recent years For my clinical practice and just getting folks healthier and in a nutshell what these cgms do is literally you put this little sensor on your arm and these have been designed for like type one diabetics that are on insulin so they can monitor their blood sugar but for even lay people uh, if you can get a sensor on your arm you can actually see the real-time impact of stress and sleep and exercise and diet on your individual blood sugar because that's the big problem is when you give generic advice to folks you don't realize that one person does great with oatmeal another person sees a 50, 70, 80 point spike with oatmeal. So when you learn how to use a powerful tool like that in real time, you're getting feedback. And that's been an amazing wearable for myself and my patients. And then I do tell people, once you learn the lessons from your wearable, Hopefully it's gonna be ingrained because I don't want people to stress out having to put a sensor on for the rest of their life and being, oh my God, why did my glucose go up this many points? Like learn your lessons from the wearable and then I say intermittently use it. So that's one thing that I love. But then, you know, I do love any wearable that gives you some heart rate feedback. I think it's important when we exercise to know sort of what your optimal target range is for working out. And for most people, they're either undershooting or overshooting where they feel like the more I work out at a higher heart rate, the healthier I'm gonna get but I've seen way too many patients that think they're doing the right thing and they had a heart attack just from working out on the treadmill too hard because their heart rate was way beyond what they can actually do. And again, here in Taipei, Silicon Valley, for any type of individuals that are putting that type A approach into their exercise and recreational goals, I'd say be really careful because there is a limit where heart rate can actually do more damage for that. So, But having some heart rate feedback, I think is another uh, good thing to have. And then really the other stuff is just, keeping myself organized. I mean, I do use something you might be familiar with called the Pomodoro technique, where you actually time block out chunks of time to, and I've got literally a Pomodoro timer on my phone. I've got one on my Chrome browser. And basically this will, it's like interval training for work, right? So 20 minute segments where I'm doing focus work, give myself a few minutes break, do that and then do it again. You have to find some way to segment out your day. If if I leave it to my own devices, I will waste and wander. I'll do scientific stuff. I'll do research. And all of a sudden, I've lost the entire day. But having a structured way to do interval working throughout the day can be very effective. So that's one of many. You're right. I've probably got endless different hacks and sensors that I like to use, but those are a few.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that last bit about like the, the segmentation of time, I mean, you started like Cal Newport and it was just kind of like, you know, take take 20 minutes to do one thing, take 10 minutes to do something else and organize your entire day. and It'll be way more effective because you're not overdoing it on one thing and burning out. So exactly. with that, I mean, talking about your podcast. So I, I listened to um, episode number 17 and it was about blood pressure and it was about an acronym called RAS. And again, I thought that episode was was developed just for me. But again, who is your ideal avatar? Like who do you really want to be listening to essentially that episode or all your episodes when it comes down to your podcast?
1: So the audience I'm looking for are individuals who care about their health, you know, and they could be at any range. They could be someone that right now, based on all, all numbers, looks and feels healthy, but they've seen something happen to a parent or maybe a good friend of theirs. Often I've seen a lot of folks that have come in and their best friend had a heart attack at age 40 and they're like, oh my God, I've got to take this seriously. So you may be at that end of the spectrum, or you might be somebody with an advanced or chronic health condition but you're not quite finding answers that you're looking for, either from your healthcare system, or maybe you're looking at other podcasts, but they're not quite talking to you. It's really to get anybody that wants to learn about their body, their metabolism, that their health at a much deeper level. Because the reason I think it's important for people to understand things in depth is because people are selling a lot of snake oil about health and wellness in the market right now. And it's based on very loosey goosey science. It's like, Magnesium gives your body energy. Take my magnesium supplement, you'll do better. Like, it's like there's a lot of that going on right now. And I want people to become very informed consumers because, again, I'm biased, but I think health is the most important goal that we have in life. Nothing else is going to succeed unless we have our health in check. So, you, regardless of your background, I don't care if you hated high school biology, if I can get you interested in health and to understand some of these concepts at a little bit of a deeper level, then you become an informed consumer around health. So you're not wasting money on all these ridiculous supplements and overpaying for health and wellness. You're doing the right things to motivate yourself and you're doing it in an informed way that's meaningful and hopefully it doesn't feel miserable, too. So so if really health optimizer, which I think ever, everyone's trying to optimize their health in some way. That's what the podcast is designed for. But it is a little bit more in depth in the sense that I want people to understand the science in a little bit more detail. And one of my selfish reasons for doing it at a little bit more of a depth is one of my key audience markets is physicians. So, you know, I want to make sure physicians are starting to think about medicine differently. And it's happening as a result of the book and my work where docs have reached out to me saying this had a huge impact. And to me, that's so gratifying because that one doctor is have, has a panel of 2,000, 3,000 plus patients. So it's going to have a multiplier impact on their patients as well too. So so that's sort of what we're doing with the with the podcast for now.
0: So let's just say we're talking to that particular doctor and that doctor, and I would think everyone that's a doctor has some entrepreneurial insight to them, whether they're running their own practice or they want to run their own practice. So let's say they're hitting that hurdle. Maybe they even have their own personal health issues and they found you. What words of wisdom or insight would you give to them to help them carry on and overcome these hurdles?
1: Yeah, good point. So I'd say for uh, it's interesting you say that because I do have a lot of physicians that see me as their you know lifestyle consultant. And one key message for anybody, whether you're a physician or somebody who just cannot find an hour to take better care of your health, Mm -hmm. is how do you find ways? So here's sort of my creative art is, how do I find ways of weaving health and wellness into my busy workday? Because a lot of us, what we do is maybe in the morning we'll meditate for 20 minutes. Maybe we'll do our exercise But then we're like stressed and panicked all day and we're sitting in front of a computer all day. And I wish we had a system where, yeah, 30 minutes in the morning would cash it in and we could just do whatever the heck we want. Unfortunately, our body doesn't work like that. So even if you don't have that magical hour, 30 minutes, it's like, how do you become the fittest zoom meeting attendee, like shut your camera off and do ten squats right there like there like I have like a kettlebell next to me right now, and I do so many creative things with my lower body, my upper body, so i 'm constantly in sort of a movement form sometimes i 'm stretching my hamstring because i 'm sore from a hike I did the day before because I tried to play basketball, but how do you weave that into your day? Many of us are not breathing optimally we 're not oxygenating our brain properly, and you can learn how to breathe really well while you 're listening on a meeting so 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 these are the tactics. And you know, for my my physician patients too, I tell them when you're charting, you know, even when you're charting, you're entering data, there's ways that you can sit, there's ways that you can breathe that in real time will bring you a lot of benefit. Yeah, it's not the same as going out for an hour hike or an exercise session, but you'd be surprised at what an impact that can have on your glucose and your overall mental health. So find ways to integrate that. That's really become my philosophy for the last several years is teaching people to do that. And when people are able to do that, they feel more energetic throughout the day. And guess what? Because your body has been humming and it's warmed up throughout the day. If I asked you to go for a run at 5 PM, you're ready. But when you're sitting cold, it's like, you need a forklift to lift somebody off their chair because they've been sitting for eight hours and the thought of just going to the gym is like impossible. So that's really what I'm trying to teach people is how do you be healthy in the course of your daily workday?
0: All right, so transitioning from that, they're listening right now. Do you want to deliver something to them? How do they get in contact with you? How do they find you on the internet?
1: Yeah, I think the best way to do that is you can reach out directly through my blog. So if you go to my blog, which is at culturalhealthsolutions.com, just hit the email icon and you can communicate me, with me directly. I think um, I've had a lot of folks that really want to learn the art and science of sort of what I do on a daily basis. As a result of that, I've created a program. It's called the Meta Program. So when you go to my website, if you click on Meta Program, it'll have all the information. It's actually got its own URL, themetaprogram.com. Really easy to remember, the Meta Program, M E T A Program.com. And that's where I'm taking small groups of folks. They could be entrepreneurs professionals or people that are transitioning into retirement and they're wondering how to stay healthy, all these tips that I've talked about at a high level, I literally take them on a weekly journey of how to learn this and actually apply it. I use actually a WhatsApp group where I show them videos and pictures of how I stand in Zoom meetings, what I'm doing throughout the day, so they can apply that in real time. And it's been a lot of fun. So the, those are the different ways people can reach out to me. And I am, as much as I don't do too much social media, I'm on Instagram at Rana Sinha MD, And I do apply a lot of the principles principles. principles there. I share some science articles and some practical tips on social media if that's how you like to consume information.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So going into like the bonus round, and I I love to ask this question, especially to someone of your caliber. I have no idea. I kind of can kind of think what you may say, but I don't know, right? If you could spend 24 hours with anyone, this person could be dead or alive. You're going to spend this 24 hours uninterrupted with this person. Who would you choose and why?
1: I love that question. And um, I would, I think without a doubt, I would choose my father, because I think there's a lot of loops that I needed to close with him that I didn't get to close. I mean, there's obviously a lot of fun people on that list that I can pick. But I think those 24 hours, I just want to tell him today, how thankful I am for a lot of the advice that I resisted when I was younger um, how I'm, I'm now modeling a lot of the behavior that he was doing at that point, which sometimes I found kind of embarrassing. Like, all of a sudden, he's getting up and reading poetry, he's speaking. I'm like, Dad, what are you doing? And, and now I'm like, I sort of get it, but um, yeah, definitely. I, I would love to have 24 hours to say all the things that um, you know, that I didn't get to say to my dad when I was younger,
0: yeah. And, and I think if, if you kind of go back earlier in this podcast, when I was asking you about that question about having your dad on your podcast, I was hoping that when I asked you this question that was going to be your answer. So I don't know if it was like a prerequisite or whatever, <laughs> but it was just like through osmosis. I'm happy that, that you definitely did
1: totally. Oh yeah, totally. No, no, we're pretty well connected. This is the first time we're meeting, but I feel like we're on the same page. Yeah.
0: Definitely, definitely. Nice.
1: So going into like my last bonus question,
0: right? Um, you have a lot of achievements. I mean, obviously- being published and being on stages. And you're not just talking about small stages. You're talking about like household name brands and to, to, to pat you on your back. And I know you're not going to do it. You've made a lot of damn achievements in your life. Which one is your most significant to date?
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Um. So I will tell you, it's, it's funny. I've been reflecting on this, especially as my boys are about to leave for college. And I would say, okay, so professional wise, I would say, writing the book, completing the book and having people reach out to me saying what an impact it impacted, had in their life. To me, that's been the greatest passive income. I'm not making tons of money off my book, but every time I get an email, that's like, to me, that's passive income because I'm not doing anything, but somebody read my book and they've been impacted and influenced by the book. So I'd say that's been the greatest professional. And I'm going to throw in a bonus. I think the greatest sort of personal achievement is every time I get a greeting card from one of my boys, um because you know it's one thing to say that my greatest achievement is being a father but for me it's the greatest achievement is being the type of father that my kids are actually able to write things on the father's day card that were not prompted but they've said things like I'm so glad that in this competitive environment, that you're the one dad that's not pressuring me to do X, Y, and Z. And that, you know, like the things they write in that, I'm like, I've saved all those cards. And whenever I'm feeling down, rather than looking at my professional achievements, I look at those greeting cards. And, you know, I think one of the things, I don't know where I heard it best is people say that you want to live a life that's not geared towards your resume or your LinkedIn profile. It's really geared towards your eulogy. Like, how are your friends, your coworkers, your kids going to look at you later in life? And you would think that both of those would align, but they don't always, right? I've I've taken care of entrepreneurs and people that work for the same companies, and they're like, the culture in this work is toxic. God, that CEO is just ruining the company. Yes, we're making billions of dollars, but nobody likes working here, right? So those two are not always aligned at all. So, so uh, yeah, it was a long answer, but I think that's sort of what I look at: is my my kids greeting cards, and then just getting the response from the book from before.
0: Gotcha. And the thing I mean, obviously from the outside and looking in all like your visual achievements, right? I mean, talking on stages and talking in front of Google and, and all these other things you've done. And for you on the personal side is writing your book and is getting written notes from your kids. <laughs> It's, it's it's a beautiful thing, right? I mean, it, it kind of goes to show. It's not all, about all the things that you achieve or all the things, the monetary gains that you get. It's always about like the little things and the legacy that you're leaving behind. And I think for you, your dad left you with a legacy and you're taking that legacy and you're adding on to it. And now you have two kids that are gonna walk away with this new revised version of what you have learned from your dad.
1: Well, you know, the way you summarize that is so beautiful that I think we need to double click on that because I think what's motivated me the most is being here in Silicon Valley, I mean, I've had patients and clients, like you said, that are running the biggest companies in the world, wealth and achievement. It's like you can't hold a candle to them, but they're often coming in feeling very empty. I mean, mental health conditions are at the top of the list for a lot of these tech companies where employees have all of the benefits and more. And that very early on gave me the realization that if I'm the type of parent, that's just going to try to achieve academic and professional success for my kids. But they're feeling empty in their 20s and 30s. Yeah, there's a lot of it I'm not going to be able to control. No matter what I do, there might be issues they're going to face that are out of my hands. But if I'm not equipping them with that non academic, non professional type of guidance and reasoning, then what am I doing? And that was a big wake up call. Because for me, too, it's like, sure, I can earn more, but look at my. You know, patients that have way more than I'll ever learn in three lifetimes, they're still struggling. So, so it has helped me. And I'm so glad you summarized it so well. Is it for a lot of you that think that, you know what, once I start my business, once I get that book published, once I get up to this audience growth on my newsletter, that's when I've arrived? Uh, you can give your example, but I'll tell you, that hasn't been the case for me. I mean, I kind of thought when the book is published, whew, I've made it, but then I was like, there's a lot of things that I still need to take care of that have nothing to do with my business. So I, I keep realizing that over and over. So hopefully that message resonates. I think you summarized that so nicely.
0: Yeah, I definitely appreciate that. So, I mean, in closing, you're a fellow podcaster and I like to close out my podcast by giving the person I'm interviewing an opportunity to become the host of my show and ask me any questions that may have come up while we were speaking. So now- Oh my gosh, yeah. Show. So absolutely.
1: Hey, listen, uh, even though I'm a podcaster, I'm still a, a newbie and a novice in the area of podcasting social media business. So for me, on behalf of myself and my physician colleagues that just want to get started, I mean, you're an expert in this area. What are like the top two or three things that you would say for somebody, let's say with podcasting, that you would recommend they just do where they're going to feel gratified and and they're not going to just do two episodes and say, I'm done. Like, What would be your sort of approach to that? Maybe that's a long answer, but a little bit of advice would be great.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's. I think for you, you've done it to a certain extent. You figured out what you want to talk about and to your point, you're gonna deliver that content. And and something may come up on Google News tomorrow that's gonna to spark you. You're gonna wake up in the morning, you may write a note, and then you're gonna talk about it on the episode a week later. That right there is the formula to where how you can keep a podcast going. For me, it's interviewing people like you. Like I have an opportunity to first time meeting you, but I get to read about you, get to understand you, get to do a little bit of the insight, and then I get to face to face with you and take the information that I've learned and mm. then work with you to kind of have the conversation to verify, and then you give me so much more insight about the things that I thought that I may not have even known that you're presenting now. So you have to figure out like what makes you wake up every single day and deliver that in the podcast. For me, it's listening and telling people's stories. For you, I think it's more so being able to deliver content that's gonna help someone with their health. And as long as you stay in that window, there's no reason why you mm. ever wanna stop podcasting.
1: I love it. Yep, yep. And you're you're clearly doing an amazing job of what you just put out. But it looks like like you said within the podcast there are different areas and styles that people can deliver within. So, yes. so find what's right for you rather than find out that so and so's podcast has this many followers. So let me follow his approach, but it's really customizing it to what you're really good at and what you're passionate about. So
0: And your strengths too. Like, you know, literally mm. kind of when I realized like the definition of my name, Chanel kind of, it, it, from what I've learned, it, it's a Hindi dialect that means listen. So I was like, okay, mm. let me live up to this a little bit. So I started getting into podcasting and then that's what I started hearing more and more. I'm a good listener. I was like, well, damn, I'm living up to my name. Why do I feed <laughs> into that, right? Right so that's why I take it so personal now. It's like, I'm listening. Like when you said you're, you had twins, I didn't know you had twins until you said you had twins around 22 minutes. And I was like, okay, I want to bring that back up. 20 minutes from now, I want to ask him this other question. But if yeah. I wasn't listening, I would have missed that opportunity to be able to close out and say, I think that you're delivering what your dad gave to you to your two boys
1: now. That's right. Exactly. Yep. Very well put. You're definitely living up to your name. Keep up the good work. We're all benefiting from that. Yeah, I definitely appreciate it. So any other questions? No, I think we're good. Thanks for the opportunity. This has been a lot of fun. And I, I, by the way, I, I don't know if I'm on video, but I'm really appreciating the Darth Vader, Darth Vader and Yoda in the back because we're a big Star Wars family. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's like
0: the yin and the yang, man. You can't have one without the other. So definitely exactly. representative for sure. Wow.
1: Beautiful. Thank I you. I definitely
0: appreciate you coming on the show today. I mean, it kind of goes back to your name, like the, 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 health is wealth boss. I think that that's exactly who you are. I mean, you're talking to people that want to be wealthy, but you're telling them, Hey, you need to focus on your health before you can actually enjoy that wealth.
1: You got to exactly. Thank you.
0: Great. S.A. Grant over and out. Or drop me your thoughts via a call or a text at 762 233 BOSS. That's 762 233 2677. I would love to hear from you. Remember, to become a Boss and Cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss and Cage are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful ebook.